Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Hey, Rob. I am getting in the spirit, the holiday spirit. It's spooky season, and that means I'm only going by Spooky J. Spooky J, okay. He's back. Spooky J is back. Are we going to put the spooky theme this week? We got a spooky theme. We might, maybe we should launch it. Yeah. By this time, if people are listening, if people are still listening to the, the episode, if they haven't turned it off after 30 seconds, they have heard the, sp- the, spooky, heard the spooky insurgents version. theme song. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Well, and you know, frankly, it's hard for me to get into the spooky season right now because I'm sitting here sorting through the dozens and dozens of phone calls and complaints we've received here at the office uh, regarding former friend of the show, Ken Klippenstein and his abhorrent behavior. We've just been getting inundated with, with hate mail. And I think it's deserved, frankly, his disgusting uh-huh. comments about Diane Feinstein's uh, staffers being entombed with her. Like she's some kind of ancient Egyptian Pharaoh. I don't condone that kind of comment. I think it's really grotesque. I think it's a Diane Feinstein is a lifelong dedicated public servant. And uh, it doesn't deserve to be referred to in that kind of flippant way. You've got grieving staffers being mocked cruelly by Ken Klippenstein. You've got Judy in HR. She had to take a leave. She had to take a leave. She was so, all the calls that she was fielding. Somebody sent her anthrax. So that, yeah, that's, that's why she had to go. <laughs> yeah, she actually was poisoned. And <laughs> our thoughts are with Judy and her family right now, because that's that's a tough situation. Um in retrospect, we shouldn't have had her handle that package. It looked really suspicious, and the powder was on the outside. So. Yeah, it was a little maybe. I could have used more precaution, just throwing it at her and be like, "Judy, take care of that." That was maybe, you know, that's not her job. She's in HR. I mean, that's literally not what her job is. But so it, you know, it's a learning situation for all of us. But let's keep the focus on Ken Klippenstein, his disgusting comments, and if there's. <laughs> If there's listeners of the show right now that are angry, I just want you to know that we see you, we hear you, we're angry too, and we are ready to announce today that Ken has been banned from the show. Yep. He will no longer be appearing on the show anymore, so no one has to yep. to worry about that. So let's do it. I think we can all move move past this now. Yeah, we're very sorry about our past association with Ken Klippenstein. It will not ever no happen again you have no. the insurgents insurgents That's guarantee the, the, the ken the rob and jordan guarantee yeah will never be on the show again absolutely so just wanted to get that up front in case anyone was just tuning in to uh, uh hear the the status of that the update um yeah he's gone he's gone so don't worry about it folks he can't he can't hurt you anymore okay <laughs> He's like, uh, it's like inevitably when he comes back on, like it's gonna like be like Michael Myers, just the guy. The guy will not die. He cannot yeah, be yeah. banned. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, you turn so around, funny. he's just there. Like, hey guys, ah, like get the uh, fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Joke, jokes aside, the reaction, like that. The one tweet that really got me that you mentioned it was there are grieving staff. Yeah. Oh, yeah okay. It's like. Come on. Anybody who worked in that office certainly knew this person was not all there. There was a reporter, a writer who apparently interned or worked in her office over a decade ago. 
and after she died and in i think in response to that tweet said that they knew she was losing it that long ago like this isn't new they knew they knew I mean, she, she was not doing well she, she like they voted in the senate like hours before her death from her literal deathbed she's voting in the senate like <laughs> i think it's pretty clear that she was not in in the best of health shall we say very generously so yeah i don't think yeah, it's this that, wasn't uh, some shocking death it wasn't like a 47 year old died of a heart attack yeah. like come on was she vaxxed though that's a uh... You know That's what's funny? Question. <laughs> like that that being a reaction is good to like everything now. Yeah. But someone someone said to me the other day, and it really like it makes so much sense and it's so true. When someone says jab, you immediately know their politics. Yeah. Like who 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 is in the in the US, at least, because that's certainly a UK thing. But who you know who is saying, oh, I went to get the jab yeah. in support of getting like their fourth booster or something like that? Yeah. Un- unless it's they're doing it weird... ironically. But if someone just yeah. says like they want you to get the jab, you know, you know everything you need to know about them. <laughs> the jab. It's such a toddler thing. Like who talks like that? Like we're just <laughs> fucking five years old here in your chicken pox. <laughs> so I don't know. Oh, man. We had a good conversation earlier this week. With John Siebel's of Eve Six, we talked about merch cuts, Live Nation, the music industry, how Eve Six is changing their music release strategy and approach, especially in an era of streaming. That was a ton of fun. Did you like that conversation, Rob? I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fantastic. Always good for me to to shoot the breeze with fellow fellow people in the biz, in the music biz. <laughs> You know, it's a good chance for me to remind people of where my background and how I used to be cool and used to do things. Indian pop yeah. mall superstars. That's, that's mall right. rock. <laughs> that's right. I mean, it's you joke, but that is literally something I talked about with John. How I that's one thing that I really remember from being a musician and feeling very disillusioned by the fact that I did feel that over the in an effort to become more popular we did have to kind of chase these trends and we did have to, I, what I felt like was kind of like make kind of creative uh, sacrifices or, or uh, in a way, and then kind of tone down anything kind of interesting that we might've been into at one point. So it was part, it was genuinely something that was very, even though I, I, I enjoyed a lot of the pop music that we did. Um, it was something that was very alienating for me when I was in a band and when I was in the music biz. And that's something we talked about with John and about how, having this kind of direct relationship through your audience and listeners and fans through uh, platforms like Patreon can allow artists to kind of do what feels good to them and what makes sense to them. And they don't feel the need to try and chase viral hits or radio spins or TikTok impressions or whatever it is. So um, I think it's interesting. It's, it's cool to see like what, how they're trying to use this new model to uh, stay relevant to it, to their, their listeners and their fans. And it was, it was a really great, great talk. Yeah, it must feel liberating to really just be able to make the music you want to make. Just do what you want creatively. That freedom yeah. has to feel great. So I, I love that for them. But that conversation, though, is not liberated because it's only for paid interns. Yes. If you go to insurgentspod.com, it's just five bucks a month. You can get access to that episode and every premium episode we release. 
our whole back catalog immediately at your fingertips. Just five bucks a month at insurgentspod.com. You get access to those episodes and you help keep the show going. We cannot thank you enough to the people who have subscribed. Without you, we would not be able to do this. So thank you sincerely for subscribing. Yes. Thank you to our beloved paid interns. We couldn't do it without you. And again, as Jordan said, if you do want to get access to that and other bonus content, please head over to insurgentspod.com to subscribe. And do you want to just set up our conversation we had today with uh, Nikhil Goyal? Yeah. I'm putting some flair on his last name. I think it's just Goyal, it's Goyal. but if you want to do okay. Goyal, I like that, throwing an yeah. E on there. It, it's probably not good to <laughs> mispronounce the name of the person, actually, that, uh, that we're talking to. But. I do believe he told us before we started recording mm, what his name yeah. was. Someone was we'll not need paying to attention. Check the, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Who's to say? You know, I don't know. It's there's there's he could, could be, be wrong. There, <laughs> I think that's wrong. I think that's the most likely answer. Anyway, but after mocking me, do you want to <laughs> set up this interview then before we get to that? Nikhil Goyle, former Bernie Sanders advisor and author of the new book "Live to See the Day: Coming of Age in American Poverty," which is a fantastic look at the real material conditions affecting real people that he followed for years in Philadelphia who live in the children children who live in poverty and the experiences that they encounter that they live and how all of these different parts of our society set them up to fail because of our government's neglect in addressing the problem of poverty in this country he joins us to talk about that kevin mccarthy and of course the zombification yeah yes the zombification of americans who were vaccinated because of the national cell phone alert today everyone who got the jab yep they're all 28 days later uh, style zombies now i'm very unfortunate very unfortunate situation <laughs> i see people running down my street right now yeah, so i just think feasting, they're looking for brains cracking people's heads open and feasting on the goo inside um but yeah it was, it was a great conversation and let's not delay any further. Let's bring on Nikhil Goyle, who will be joining the program right after this. sure that both of you turned off your cell phones today uh, just in advance of the the national alert which as we all know Mm -hmm. and is the official stance of everyone here and on behalf of all of our listeners that today the ebs tested a system using 5g and it activated the marburg virus in people who have been vaccinated and sadly some of them did, in fact, turn into zombies. We have the evidence. We have the proof. We will show you later. But I just want to make sure both of you are safe. Your phones were off today. I'm actually, since I'm in Canada, I didn't get the emergency alert, so I'm good. I was able to I was able to swipe okay. all day, scroll, swipe, watch videos, no problem. I guess the vaccine... Uninterrupted. Yeah. The 5G uh, experiment right. is, hasn't reached us yet, so I guess... I'm going to have to keep it up, put my phone in the microwave, wrap it in tinfoil, put it in the microwave. When that time comes, I'm going to be ready. But it's really, it's scary being able to sit here from Canada and see this mass zombification process 
happening in real time. It's like really alarming. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> damn, you know, scary, spooky season, right in time. <laughs> The Illuminati really—they pick it their is. spots well, don't they? It's like you know, it's Halloween. Let's have a little fun this Halloween. <laughs> let's let's activate the the five G zombification plan. It's funny. I I wonder. I, when's the last time they did this? I wonder if it happened during the Trump administration. Imagine if Trump could just like send a message to every American at his at his will. He should just use that as Twitter. If he's not going to be on there anymore, just he should use that emergency service as his way to. <laughs> communicate that was to that was though like a that was a moment of liberal panic during the trump years when they rolled this system out there were all these like you know resistance scaremongers who were being like trump can directly communicate with everybody trump can access <laughs> your phones and he can send you messages who knows what he'll do and he i don't think they ever did it. maybe they did one test but he certainly didn't use it to be like uh, the Diet Coke still makes yeah. people fat. You never see a skinny. You know, it's, it was <laughs> never anything. like a Vanity like Fair personal. after party from 1992. <laughs> <laughs> Graydon <laughs> Carter's trash. Something about Taylor Swift. He's ranting about. <laughs> yeah, he was asked the other day about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, the relationship, and his quote, his quote was so good. And I, I, I kind of wish if he wasn't harmful. And he didn't have any power, any especially any political power. If he was just somebody that they went to for like pop yeah. culture gossip quotes, he would be hilarious because it was something like, oh, yeah, maybe they'll make it. Maybe they won't. Probably not. <laughs> it's, just, it's such a funny <laughs> thing to say about a brand new couple. <laughs> Anytime somebody famous passes away, um, we just cue to Donald Trump to you know, stand on an airport runway. Yeah. And I'm hearing and, this for the first time. <laughs> yeah. No, that's what I, uh, James Austin Johnson, who does that, that really amazing Trump, uh, impression, former guest of the show, or actually, no, I shouldn't reveal that. That was actually Donald Trump who appeared on the show that time, but I saw him doing an interview. We <laughs> talked about that. I think that's really where the, he would be thrive there. If he was just hosting some kind of like entertainment tonight kind of show, he would be in his element. He wouldn't have these kind of legal troubles. You know, he'd be able to talk about the, all the hot <laughs> goss. He'd be funny. You know, we can all kind of just enjoy that. That's really like where he would really be in his element. If he was just talking about that kind of stuff all day, Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, she, she <laughs> cheated on him like a dog, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Nikhil Goyle, we're, we're happy to have you. You are former Bernie Sanders advisor and author of the new book, Live to See the Day. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? No, thanks so much for, uh, for having me. It's great to be here. We start these conversations the same way. Just so we know who we're dealing with, we ask all of our guests the same question. Uh, but now it's your turn. Nikhil, are you a gamer? Sadly, uh, I'm not. Sadly not. Oh, man. We're on a bad run oh. here lately. Oh, boy. This is we're over two this week. <laughs> it's been so great to have you. You could pick up Live to See the Day in bookstores near you. <laughs> Honestly, if that if that's it, like thanks for the thanks for the uh uh the ad. You know, this was a I may not win no, no. the gamer community buyers, but you know. There's nothing. You can't find anything. Any game any mobile game. Were you a gamer when you were younger? I played uh, MLB The Show 
MLB the right. show on PlayStation as a child. Yeah. So sure. That counts. Yeah, that, that, I, I'm that a big baseball counts. fan. You're so in. Does that, if that counts, um, you know, I guess that might qualify. <laughs> you got a team. It's getting into playoff season in, uh, in MLB. What's, are you, are you into that? I, uh, I grew up as a huge Yankees fan. Uh, this, this season has just been, uh, yeah, rough. <laughs> Let's get into the big story of the week. And that is Kevin McCarthy was ousted from his speaker position after Matt Gates led a mini mutiny on the Republican side and got a handful of freedom caucus freaks to uh, call for his ouster. And these are rules that he agreed to in exchange for their support for his position as speaker earlier this year. Well, now that's backfired. They claim it's about his breaking of deals, his lying to them, his positioning and you know deal making in the CR process in moments like avoiding government shutdown and various spending bills. I'm sure if we scratch the surface just a little bit, there's more to it than that. He's he's kind of a a slimy creature, and he's always had that reputation. He's been known to be a serial liar, not a person of his word. That that reputation has preceded him and definitely manifested during his tenure as speaker. Democrats, of course, join with Gates because all it does it's a, it's a layup. Hey, do you want to make the Republicans look crazy? <laughs> do you want to make them look disorderly? Here you go. Here's your opportunity, and they took it and good on them. Now there's all these res- like right-wing pundits and reactionaries who are saying, hey, why didn't Democrats vote to preserve the institution and the spirit of bipartisanship? They should have voted to protect McCarthy. Nikhil, as somebody who has advised advised a member of Congress, somebody who's been in the political world, what's your take on this? Should they have voted to preserve the institution? Uh, It's just a completely laughable proposition i can't even (laughs) take that uh that argument seriously um you know this is a a man um uh who has emboldened uh the most evil and far-right members of his party that allowed um that that allow them to function successfully in this institution um he has done absolutely nothing to address uh the major crises facing working class families across this country as costs continue uh, to rise. And um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's just remarkable to see what happened yesterday. Uh, He deserved it. I mean, this is, this is, this is what happens when you uh, give power to a a small faction of the party uh, and let them run away with it. You know, he he had to make a deal with the devil uh, in order to get, uh, become speaker in the first place. And now look what's happened. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it's just an example of, of a party that's in shambles, um, that is just failing to, uh, address any of the concerns that Americans have, uh, and are more interested in inter-party fights and rivalries, um, than anything serious concerning the country. It is pretty amazing when it comes to Gates, how he kind of seemed to shrug off the whole scandal about paying for like sexual encounters with possibly underage women, or I can't remember the exact details, but it seemed like the kind of thing that would sink a lot of political figures. And somehow he just kind of shrugged that off. And now he kind of has the power and the ability to kind of wield, wield this and, and overthrow the speaker of the, of the Republican party. I mean, it's, it's kind of incredible. It's a pretty incredible thing. And I don't know. It's like, 
I think it's very funny. It's funny seeing the chaos. I think it's it's smart for you know liberals and Democrats to go, okay, we should throw gasoline on on this fire and kindling. Um, I don't know. I think some there's something about it. Not to not to say hand it to Matt Gates. I do think there's something about these kind of people within the Republican Party that are willing to uh, openly fight with and go against their leadership to try and get what they want. I think we see on the other side, we see this very sort of conciliatory, you know, let's not rock the boat too much approach. And I think we've seen like from the progressive side, you've seen that kind of be used against them, I think, to kind of uh, absorb a lot of progressive energy and not really deliver on things that the, the progressive parts of the party really want as much. So I I enjoy the chaos. I think it's definitely funny. I I think I would like to see maybe a little bit more of maybe not quite the same level of chaos, but a little bit more of the willingness to challenge the leadership of the party, you know? And, but again, it's, it's Matt Gates. It's not someone that I think has really like principles that I really agree with about anything, but I saw David Sirota tweeting about this. I think like there is something to be said for the fact that these people are willing to uh, not just do whatever the leadership of the party tell them and to just openly and flagrantly, uh, uh, put them in these kind of positions and and try and wield the power that they have. I think there's maybe something to be said about that. I mean, I'm just I'm just glad uh, at the end of the day that they were able to avert a government shutdown, a crippling shutdown um, that would have put you know, millions of people, if not millions of people, out of work um, in the federal government and uh, and just cripple major public services, you know, from Head Start to FEMA. To other critical uh, services and functions, um, so I'm glad that was at least averted. But you know, I think I'm I'm greatly worried that whoever they pick um, will uh, you know will be in a position similar to what the way the, the one we're in right now in just a few just two months um, in uh, in November December. So this is just a deja vu um, that's just going to continue uh, to happen uh, in the future and. Um, this is what they deserve. This is what happens when you, uh, when you have a, a, a party that, um, that is completely in disarray, has no clear ideological function, um, and is just designed to prop up people at the very top uh, of our society. I was thinking last night, you can draw a through line from this removal of McCarthy to the Tea Party. Just, just it, it, is, it is directly connected. And, the, you know, that the, the Tea Party... And what it created, what it encouraged, and what it inspired. You could also point to January 6th. And I think David Sirota does a good job uh, in his Meltdown podcast series explaining that connection. But this, I mean, the Freedom Caucus is just the latest iteration of the Tea Party Caucus. It is the same types of ideologues, the same type of governance and approach to public service within Congress. I mean, these are... People who, if they were in the Republican Party and active in the Republican Party, like a Gates-type person, absolutely would have been a Tea Party year uh, in 2008, 2009. So in a way, it's kind of funny to see this blow up in their faces <laughs> for once, because for so long, the Tea Party has just been uh, a real nuisance to, to Democrats. But now we're seeing other factions within Congress potentially dissolved, namely the Problem Solvers Caucus. So as somebody who has been you know, close to these people, uh, had a very 
approximate view to the inner workings of Congress and, you know, these types of caucuses. What do you think the retaliation is going to be from the the mainstream Republican Party in Congress toward the Freedom Caucus? It's, it's a good question. Um, I don't know exactly uh, what form of retaliation, what retaliation will look like. Um, I know they're going to try to prop up another uh, speaker who is more ideologically and politically aligned with McCarthy and um, and try to see if that will pass the muster. Um, but I don't know if there's anybody in, uh, you know, uh, except Matt Gates and one of his allies uh, who who would actually be able to be a permanent speaker. I think this will be a process that will uh, happen uh, again and again um, until we pass a pass a bill that will fund the government for the next year. Um, I think this is an ongoing deja vu, unfortunately, uh, that will cripple the, the party from functioning and, and, and the country at large. One of the names that's being forwarded as a potential replacement is Steve Scalise. Now, Steve Scalise is somebody who <laughs> has a very uh, sordid past. He previously, he, I think he called himself David Duke without the baggage and defended at one point his links to David Duke, you know, the Republican from Louisiana, similar to Duke. This is somebody who's pretty extreme, but has climbed the ranks of the Republican Party. So it's him. There's also Jim Jordan, whose name's in the mix, and a couple other people. But it looks like Trump is pitting uh, his supporters against anyone who throws their name in the ring who voted to validate the results of the 2020 election. So, I mean, who who do you think is, who do you think it's going to be? I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Scalise because he is, uh, he comes from the very hard right of the party and has expressed white supremacist and extremely racist views and positions on, on a variety of issues. Um, So that, you know, that is uh, greatly concerning. I don't know who they're going to ultimately pick. Um, You know, there's, there's also the question of, uh, if they can't find anybody, could they, you know, enter some kind of power sharing deal with Democrats in the House? Um, so there's, I think there's a bunch of uh, questions uh, still looming here. Um, and and then, you know, I think there's there's the other question around uh, the person that ultimately becomes Speaker. Are they going to be willing to strike a deal with Democrats to fund the government uh, in, into the uh, on a permanent basis? Um, and is Matt Gates's caucus and brigade going to allow that without massive cuts to uh, government spending um, and an ending of funding to Ukraine, uh, among other measures? So, you know, there, the question is, are there going to what what is on the chopping block uh, in order to satisfy uh, this this small segment of the party um, uh, that is you know, increasingly capitalizing on its power? What's amazing, too, because one thing that's come up a lot over the last uh, couple of years is people are kind of keep people kind of trying to materialize this sort of realignment out of nowhere. And like, oh, these these populist Republicans like Josh Howley and these folks are really like they're getting to Biden to the Democrats left on these issues of social spending. And that's the amazing thing is that they they could legitimately make that kind of move like we've talked about where a lot of these social program social programs that were put into place um early in the pandemic got rolled back you know democrats kind of really talked about reducing childhood poverty and were correct to do so but then of course now they're overseeing this massive increase in in child poverty 
at the same time there is space like if if you know republicans actually had any interest in like promoting this kind of a message there is a space for them to actually take up these ideas and start to promote this kind of social spending and whatever to couch their whole reactionary agenda and this kind of thing but it's incredible how wedded they are to this kind of austerity and demanding these kind of draconian cuts and demanding that any time that they agree to uh fund one of these uh fund the government that you must kick people off snap benefits and you've got to do this and it's it's just truly incredible that like they can't even when there's this opportunity to even cynically um you know hit against liberals on that issue they can't do it because they're just so they just love uh, uh taking away social programs from hungry kids and and people uh, people that need those that kind of support so it's kind of amusing on that sure. level you know by, by and large the the current republican party is a pro poverty par- party this is a, a party that um, wants to make people at the very bottom of our society suffer. Um, and you can, and that is not a hy- hyperbolic statement. That is born out of looking at the policies and the legislation that they back. Um, they want to cut Social Security. Want, they want to cut Medicare. They want to abolish the Department of Education or dramatically reduce uh, funding for uh, low-income, high-poverty schools. They want to just, uh, they want to bludgeon People who are uh, who are subsiding on uh, SNAP benefits, um, and you can just run the gamut, uh, go through any basic public assistance program, and they want to gut it in entirety or in near entirety uh, and make it harder for people to access those benefits. And um, you know, we've seen a, a number of the pandemic era programs expire uh, or wind down. Um, you know, this year we saw the uh, emergency allotments. For to SNAP benefits expire in March, and now we've seen uh, a record number of people uh, fall into food insecurity. Um, numbers that we have not seen in in, in several years uh, on on housing. Uh, homelessness has gone up uh, dramatically in the past year. Um, you know, as the emergency rental assistance um, has been fully allocated, um, and eviction filings um, are rebounding uh, since the pandemic. Um, and then on childcare, uh, you know, just just a few days ago, on September 30th, the emergency childcare relief funding expired, uh, and it is expected that you know nearly three, more than three million children could lose childcare because that funding uh, is going away. So you know, on on virtually in every sector, on every issue that affects children and families, uh, we are seeing rising costs, uh, greater unaffordability. Um, and, um, and that is, you know, and, and that is the f- a direct failure of Congress, um, to extend those programs and act on, uh, on making life more affordable for working people. There is this pushback from even ostensibly liberal pundits and analysts who dismiss any of the, what we see as very real material concerns and just simply pointing to charts and graphs and talking about things in aggregate to, Say, hey, look, every, every people are doing great right now. You should be happy. Bidenomics is working. And there's some things that are good, right? But there are still people falling through the cracks. And that's why I think your book is so fascinating. So live to see the day. You follow Ryan, Giancarlos, and Emmanuel, three Puerto Rican children in a neighborhood in Philadelphia. And you use their narratives and their experiences to show how the system is failing people in some of the most marginalized communities 
in this country. And you've been working on this book for a while. How long have you been working on this and what motivated you to write it and why? So I started working on the book in 2015. Um, I was interested in examining the high school dropout crisis. And one thing led to another, and I was connected to an alternative school in Philadelphia called uh, El Centro de Estudiantes, where I ended up meeting these three young people. Um, They had all dropped out, or I would say pushed out of high school, um, and endured enormous amount of uh, economic and social upheaval, from evictions to hunger uh, to gun violence to criminalization in the juvenile justice system on on almost every front. and what I wanted to show were a couple of things. One was that child poverty is fundamentally a crime against humanity. It is, it is, a, uh, it is an untold amount of punishing uh, in, uh, to, on some of the most marginalized people uh, in this country. It affects a child's ability to learn, develop, um, and, and flourish. Um, and then ultimately, it affects people's basic livelihood. You know, in the book, I... I, I cite some data um, about Kensington, this neighborhood that they grew up in, and I compare the life expectancy between Kensington and Society Hill, a a very wealthy, uh, mostly white neighborhood in downtown Center City. And just four miles away, the children in Kensington are expected to live to the age of 71 and 17 fewer years than the children born in Society Hill. I mean, just a if, if, when we talk about how poverty is a death sentence, I don't think anything can better encapsulate that remark than than what is happening in in Kensington. Um, and so I, I trace these young people's lives. I provide an intergenerational count of their mothers as well to show the reproduction of poverty and inequality from one generation to another um, as a result of social and economic institutions and, and policies. Um, and then I finally provide a blueprint for how we can get out of this mess, how we can finally eliminate child poverty um, and economic insecurity and provide everyone with a, a decent center of living um, and, and, li- and basic livelihood. Um, so I, I, I have both uh, dimensions in the book, both the narrative as well as some of the policy work interwoven so that I think readers will ultimately come to some of the similar conclusions on their own after reading it. What I find in these types of conversations, when you're really trying to lay out how all of these problems are intersectional, you know, going back to redlining, trying to draw connections to, uh, from redlining to the d- d- declining educational standards or declining educational performance to poverty, to hunger, you know, as we think of these as all interconnected and we see them and we understand that's the reality for unfortunately many people in this country. When you try to tell somebody who doesn't understand that or doesn't know about that inter for me i kind of feel like a conspiracy theorist sometimes like oh this is connected to this and this has this impact on this but it's like it's true this is how it works and it's very hard to synthesize and encapsulate all of these things and how they work together to make these problems worse and what i think you've done here is a really great job in doing that by showing like the the people attached to these issues because again when you talk about these issues in aggregate or just macro terms. You just remove the humanity from it. So I really like your approach. Uh, could you give people maybe an experience or a story or something 
that you came across or learned during the process of working on this book that really stuck with you? Sure. And I, you know, I appreciate the way you just described that because you know, the, w- one of my aims here was to show that this is happening to children and, and you know, people who are, uh, who are not expected to be in the labor market, this is happening to them. And so the idea that you know, poor folks are lazy and, and, uh, and this is their own doing, I mean, these are children. These are, these are human beings that were not uh, asked to be put in these uh, conditions uh, of, these, of these neighborhoods and, and their communities. And so in the book, I, you know, one of the stories that I think is very poignant is the story of Emmanuel. Um, he, he was raised by a single mother um, who uh, was uh, pretty severely disabled. They lived off of less than $10,000 a year. Uh, she received supplemental security income due to her disability, as well as temporary assistance for needy families, TANF. Um, and so together, plus SNAP benefits, uh, made up their, um, their basic income. You know, they had nothing else to live on, um, which meant that this child had to endure multiple evictions a year, balancing from house to house, being forced to pick up, lose his friendships, and move into a new neighborhood. Um, he dealt with hunger. You know, the, the final days, week of the month, uh, oftentimes they didn't have sufficient food uh, in, in the fridge. Um, and to have to rely on food banks and soup kitchens, um, or just go hungry. Um, and then on the issue of trauma and anxiety and mental uh, health, you know, the just the toll that it had on his well-being. You know, I tell the story of of Emmanuel, um, you know, grappling with his sexuality uh, later on in his life, and you know, he eventually comes out to his mother as bisexual. His mother is, you know, Pentecostal Christian woman who is pretty deeply religiously conservative um, and you know, doesn't uh, take well to uh, what he just told her. And so he has to now you know, live uh, in a dilapidated row home with rats and, and mice and, uh, and some of the slum-like conditions, dealing with his sexuality, trying to graduate high school, um, living in a neighbor where he has to always fear getting shot while walking down the street. I mean, all these things compound one another. And I can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine myself or anybody else trying to navigate that situation, you know, no less as a child. Um, and so I tell the story of Emmanuel, uh, and his quest to graduate high school, uh, in the face of these obstacles. And, you know, you talked about these intersectional intersecting problems, but just think about the compounding nature of all the problems I just described and the toll that it has uh, on a child's ability to learn in the classroom, for example. You know, these issues don't just somehow get left behind when you walk into school. They are carried in. It affects your ability to learn. It affects your mental health and your well-being, your aspirations, your goals, um, you know, ha- your self-worth. It affects every single part of your body and your spirit. Um, and in spite of that, these children are somehow trying to make it uh, on, a, on a daily basis. So um, I, I think the, the book is both harrowing, but it, also, it is also hopeful um, by telling the stories of these, these children. But fundamentally, it's a, the, the book is about explaining and showing, uh, showing people that this shouldn't be happening in the richest country uh, in the history of the world. Now, people should not have to suffer in this, in this way. This is unacceptable. And not only is it unacceptable and morally wrong, it is costing all of us. You know, I cite at the end of the book a study by the National Academies, which found that the annual cost of child poverty ranges from $800 billion to $1.1 trillion. 
that affects all of us. That's money taken out of all of our pockets, uh, whether you're rich, middle class, or, uh, or wealthy, um, in the form of higher crime, higher public uh, spending on public assistance programs, lower economic productivity. It's a drain on, on, our, entire, on our entire economy uh, the, for each day we go by uh, while this problem still exists. So um, I, I think that to me is, is the case for what we need, why we need to uh, be urgent, why we need to urgently uh, eliminate child poverty and economic uh, insecurity. Yeah, as you mentioned, like you're a, you're a former advisor to Bernie Sanders, um, Nikhil, and um, you know we've seen over the last few years now Bernie kind of trying to be sort of front and center in uh, promoting the kind of positive things that are part of that Biden agenda and trying to kind of trying to steer them in the direction of really uh, promoting this kind of progressive vision when it comes to uh, economics or Bidenomics, and. Um, now you have a lot of people in the Biden administration kind of really um, trying to tout these accomplishments that they've done, but uh, on a lot of levels, like I talked about the the sort of social safety net that was kind of erected during COVID was kind of rolled back. It led to this increase in, in child poverty. Um, a lot of the stuff that was in that Build Back Better agenda didn't end up passing because of right. uh, Joe Manchin and these kind of intransient uh, Democrats that said no. So I guess, like, I think we all agree that 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 doesn't mean that Republicans are all of a sudden good on this issue. Like I said, I think whatever opportunity there might have been for them to kind of like make hay out of those issues, as you point out, they're wedded to kind of austerity and increasing poverty rather than decreasing it. I think we all understand that. But are you a little, are you getting anxious at all? Uh, I know it's, you know, a year out before the election, but do you think the Biden administration's done enough? And do you think... Um, it, that's the fact that they have not really enacted the kind of bold vision that Bernie was kind of really campaigning on in his campaign and what he's been promoting over the last few years. Do you think that's going to come back to haunt them when they try to make the case to people that, that they they should go and vote for Democrats in the coming election? No, it's a great question. Um, so I started at the Senate uh, the day the American Rescue Plan uh, was passed uh, by the Senate. Um, and you know we got to work shortly after on uh, the agenda of Build Back Better. And we started with a $6 trillion reconciliation bill that was truncated to $3.5 trillion to $1.75, uh, and then what became the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and you know, we had a really good relationship with the Biden administration. We worked hand-in-hand hand, uh, with many components of that legislation. And you know, it, it haunts me every single day that we could not get the totality of that bill across the finish line. Um, and, you know, it, it's important to just state, like, what was in that bill. It included all the way from uh, programs such as uh, universal free preschool, affordable child care, home health care, affordable housing investment, tuition-free community college, uh, Medicare expansion to include dental, vision, and hearing care, um, uh, expanded child tax credit, uh, a major climate investments, prescription drug reform, higher taxes on the wealthiest Americans and largest corporations, closing the carriage interest loophole. You know, there was just so much in that bill. It was it would have really produced a cradle to grave social democracy that I think many of us have dreamed of uh, this country becoming. Um, and so, as you as you point out in the Senate, that bill uh, you know, after it passed the House, it died in the Senate. Uh, you know, due to 
uh, Senator Joe Manchin uh, stating his opposition to the bill, and then 50 Senate Republicans. Um, and you know they were still able to get uh, a pretty substantial bill, the largest climate investment in American history, uh, and some prescription drug reforms. Uh, in uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, but all of the major social and economic programs were uh, were left out, uh, and I think we're see- the, the the rise of costs of living in some uh, key sectors is a direct consequence of the failure to pass Build Back Better. And you know, I I, I reflect upon this. I wish they had you know considered uh, a, a pushing for Build Back Better uh, as the first piece of legislation, you know, because Part of the problem was that the American Rescue Plan had a lot of really great programs, but were on a temporary basis. Um, and so Build Back Better was the structural permanent solution to some of these issues. Um, and so I think that's, that's, the, that's the dilemma that I think the president and the administration are facing. You know, we are, the economy on many metrics is doing really well. Uh, unemployment is at record lows. Inflation is cooling. Uh, the labor participation rate has fully recovered and is higher than it was uh, just before the pandemic. There's a lot of really strong economic indicators, um, but people are still feeling the crunch uh, and, and, and their bills are rising. And so their lived experience, while there's a lot of progress that's been made, uh, there's still that is taking a, a toll on, um, on their perception of, of the economy and the president's um, uh, abilities to lead. People can pick up, live to see the day coming of age in American poverty at bookstores and bookshop.org is also a great site to support local independent bookstores. If you want to buy a book and don't want to support Amazon, Akil, where can people find you and uh, follow you and find more of your work? I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. And I would also just add, if uh, you can't uh, uh, purchase the book, ask your local library to buy a copy. Um, that is also a great way to support your local library and, and, uh, and authors. So, um, but thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me, and thanks for your questions. 